I'm Nathan, and this is Stories with a Twang. For this episode, I'm going to read a story from 13 Tennessee Ghosts and Jeffrey by Katherine Tucker Wyndham. I've decided to do her version of the Bell Witch, which she entitled The Witch Who Tormented the Bell Family. It all happened more than 150 years ago, but the tales of the Bell Witch are still Tennessee's most famous ghost tales, and it's most amazing. John Bell, victim of the witch's hatred, was an unlikely subject for such a visitation. Born in North Carolina in 1750, he, his wife, and their children moved to Robertson County, Tennessee in 1804. Bell bought 1,000 acres of land along the Red River, cleared fields, planted orchards, and built a sturdy house for his family. Nearby, he built a one-room schoolhouse where his children, Jesse, John, Drury, Benjamin, Zadok, Richard Williams, Joel Egbert, Esther, and Betsy, and his neighbor's children were educated. John Bell was a very religious man. Neighbors said his life was guided by the Bible and by the American Constitution, with the most emphasis, of course, on the Bible. He had family prayers three times daily, and his house served as a gathering place for prayer meetings and other worship services. On those occasions when he had business in town, he was an imposing figure in his long blue split bottom coat trimmed with silver buttons, his beaver hat, and his linen stock. His fervent political speeches were credited with helping to win many elections, and he never hesitated to speak out for what he felt was right. In short, John Bell became wealthy and influential with a reputation with genial hospitality, personal integrity, and Christian discipleship. There was certainly nothing in his background or in his personality to suggest that he would literally be tormented to death by a witch. Bell first encountered the witch, as the spirit chose to be called, in the late summer of 1817. He was walking through his cornfield, estimating the possible size of his crop, when he saw a strange animal sitting between the rows. The creature, which looked like a dog, stared at Bell in a way that made the man feel uneasy. He shot at it, and the animal disappeared among the thick cornstalks. The episode would probably not have caused Bell any concern had not similar events followed. Within the next few days, one of Mr. Bell's sons, Drury, saw a huge bird, much larger than a turkey, perched on a fence. A daughter, Betsy, on an outing with the other children, reported seeing a little girl dressed in green swinging on the limb of an oak tree near the house. Dean, one of their servants, told of meeting a peculiar black dog at a certain spot in the road each night. One summer night in 1818, little Williams Bell, who was only six or seven at the time, was awakened by having invisible hands grab his hair and jerk it with such force that he feared his head was being pulled off. His frightened screams were drowned out by shrieks from Betsy in her room across the hall. She too had felt her hair pulled by rough, unseen hands. It was the beginning of months of torment suffered by the lovely young girl who with her father became the major object of the witch's wrath. John Bell, up to this point, had tried to ignore the supernatural happenings at his home. He did not wish to be ridiculed by his neighbors. He did not want to upset his own family by putting undue emphasis on the strange occurrences. He still hoped to find a logical explanation for the events, and each day he half expected the intruder to depart. However, when the unseen spirit terrified his children and seemed determined to do them physical harm, John Bell sought help from his close friend, James Johnson. 
I know you will find it difficult to believe, John Bell told his friend, but a demon has taken up residence in our house. I need your help in determining what is causing this trouble. So James Johnson and his wife spent the night with the Bells. Johnson was a pious man, a lay preacher, and he led the family prayers and hymns before they all retired for the night. No sooner had the household settled down than the commotion began. That night, the spirit demonstrated all of her perverse tricks, like a naughty child showing off for visitors. There were knockings, scratchings, gnawings, chairs turning over, chairs rattling, covers snatched off, hair pulled, and faces slapped. Nor did the guests escape. The cover was pulled from their bed, and constant bumpings in their room made sleep impossible. Mr. Johnson became convinced that the deeds were performed by a force which possessed intelligence, and he tried to talk with it. His initial efforts at communication were not successful, but a few months later his theory proved to be correct. Greatly puzzled by the mystery, Mr. Johnson advised Mr. Bell to make his plight known and to ask other friends to come help with the investigation. From that time until Mr. Bell's death some two years later, the Bell family had a continuous stream of visitors, some neighbors and some from far away. Not one of them was able to rid the house of his hex or to explain the witch's powers. The visitors encouraged by Mr. Johnson tried to entice the witch to talk, to tell what its mission was. After a time, it did begin to make a soft whistling sound when spoken to. Then the whistle changed into an indistinct whisper, and finally that whisper grew clear and strong enough to be heard and understood by anyone in the room. News that the Bell Witch could talk created even greater excitement and brought more visitors to the home. Among the visitors, none was more famous or more interested in the phenomenon than was General Andrew Jackson, soon to be elected President of the United States. Jackson was living at his home near Nashville at the time, and when he heard of the cavortings of the witch at the Bell home, he determined to go and investigate for himself. He rounded up some of his fun-loving friends to share the trip. They loaded camping equipment and provisions into a wagon. Jackson did not wish to impose on the Bell's hospitality as so many other visitors had done, and the men set out on horseback behind the wagon. Jackson reined up his horse to call to a friend, we're off on a witch hunt to John Bell's place. I'll bet you my best fighting cock against a keg of your best whiskey that the witch is a fraud. And he rode off. As the caravan neared the Bell home, the wagon suddenly became stuck on the dry, solid ground. No matter how the driver urged the horses or how hard they strained, the wagon would not budge. Its wheels were locked. Jackson and his friends dismounted and pushed with all their strength, but not an inch did the wagon move. The men removed the wheels to examine them closely, but they found no fault which could account for the stalled wagon. It must be the witch, Jackson said, half in jest. From above the wagon came a caterwauling voice. All right, General. Go on. I'll talk to you tonight. The wagon moved easily and quickly toward the bell home. Jackson paid his bet. He had found out that the witch was no fraud. Meanwhile, the witch's conversations increased in frequency and in duration. She enjoyed amazing her listeners with her knowledge of the Bible and of religious matters. She could sing every hymn in the hymnal, could quote any passage in the Bible, and could argue convincingly any questions of theology. She must have been a faithful, if unseen, attendant at church services, for she would often astound visiting preachers by repeating word for word their prayers, their hymns, their announcements, and their sermons. She was a talented mimic and could copy voices and inflections perfectly. 
she particularly liked to mimic James Johnson, whom she called Old Sugar Mouth because of the sweet words he says when he prays and preaches. Perhaps even more amazing than her interest in religion was her custom of reminding guests of events in their past, often happenings that had occurred miles away. In fact, the witch began making nightly reports of all the doings in the community. Many residents, it is said, improved their conduct for fear their misdeeds would be reported publicly by the witch. She seemed to be able to be everywhere, see everything, hear everything, and most dangerous of all, tell everything. Her religion was only on the surface, however, and did not prevent her from bedeviling Mr. Bell and Betsy unmercifully. She seems to have hated Mr. Bell and to have envied Betsy. The rest of the family she tolerated, and she even had real affection for Mrs. Lucy Bell. Many examples are recorded of the witch's devotion to Mrs. Bell, but perhaps the most amazing show of concern came during a time when Mrs. Bell was ill with pleurisy. The witch, she was called Kate, although nobody ever knew whether the spirit was male or female. The subject of its true identity was one topic the witch refused to discuss. Visited Mrs. Bell each morning during her illness and tried to cheer her up by singing to her. One verse from a song sung daily by Kate ended with the words, Troubled like the restless sea, feeble, faint, and fearful, plagued with every sore disease, how can I be cheerful? Neighbors nursing Mrs. Bell never failed to weep at the witch's plaintive, sweet rendition of the sentimental song. It was during the same illness that Kate, the witch, brought Mrs. Bell a gift of hazelnuts to tempt her appetite. Hold out your hands, Lucy, and I will give you a present, the witch's voice instructed. A shower of hazelnuts fell from the ceiling into Mrs. Bell's outstretched hands. Then, when Mrs. Bell observed that she could not eat the nuts because they were not cracked, their shells were cracked by strong, unseen hands, and then placed carefully on the bed beside Mrs. Bell. People in the room who witnessed the event looked in vain for openings in the walls or ceilings, but they found no crevice through which the nuts could have come. A few days later, they were equally amazed when a bunch of wild grapes freshly picked from a swampy thicket dropped gently on the bed beside Mrs. Bell. Eat your grapes, Lucy. They'll make you feel better, the witch instructed. Mrs. Bell's recovery began almost at once, but as Mrs. Bell improved, Mr. Bell's health became worse. He complained of a strange affliction. At first, he had the sensation of having a stick lodged crossways in his mouth. This was not too upsetting since it occurred infrequently and was of short duration, but as the witch's hatred for him increased, this ailment grew in seriousness. Mr. Bell's tongue swelled until it filled his whole mouth, making it impossible for him to eat or speak for hours or even days at a time. In addition, the witch tantalized him in other ways, sometimes snatching off his heavy work shoes, no matter how tightly the laces were tied, and slapping him with such force that his face showed the distinct marks of a handprint and ached for hours. And all the while, Kate boasted that she intended to put John Bell in his grave. Finally, Mr. Bell's afflictions, coupled with the constant taunting threats of the witch, sent him to his bed, where he died on December 20th, 1820. His death, witnesses said, was caused by a potent poison which the witch boasted she had poured between his lips during the night. The poison was never identified. Even the doctor called to attend the dying man could not classify it. But when a few drops of liquid from the cloudy vial were placed on the tongue of a cat, the creature whirled around, sprang crazily into the air, and died. And the witch's taunting laughter filled the room. 
After the death of John Bell, Kate concentrated her devilment on young Betsy Bell. Betsy, in her late teens, was an unusually pretty girl, taller than average and with a graceful carriage. Her eyes were blue and sparkling, and her flaxen hair was long and quite wavy. She was a bright, intelligent girl, always praised by Professor William Powell for her fine schoolwork, and she had a happy, sunny disposition. Or she had until the witch began tormenting her. Betsy and Joshua Gardner, a handsome young man she had known since childhood, were deeply in love. Their plans for marriage displeased old Kate, and she alternately pleaded with Betsy not to marry Josh. Please, Betsy Bell, don't marry Josh and threatened her with dreadful consequences if she became his wife. If you marry Josh Gardner, you will both regret it to the end of your days. And so on Easter Sunday, 1821, Betsy returned to a heartbroken Josh Gardner, the engagement ring she had accepted from him only the day before. He left the community before the week was out and the lovers never met again. After a proper interval, Betsy married her former school teacher, William Powell, and the two apparently had a good marriage until his death 17 years later. In 1875, Betsy moved to Panola County, Mississippi to live with her daughter, and she died there in 1890 at the age of 86. With the death of John Bell and the termination of the romance between Betsy and Josh, the witch's evil reign in the Bell household ended, but descendants of John Bell's family still talk about the strange visitation of the witch and of the turbulent distress she called. They call it our family trouble. I hope you all enjoy Catherine Tucker Wyndham's interpretation of the Bell Witch. I've heard the Bell Witch story many times before and she definitely left out a few things, but I like how it was short and sweet and I hope you all really enjoyed it too. If you wanna follow the podcast, I'm on Instagram and Facebook at Stories with a Twang Podcast. So please follow and share. If you have any stories you would like me to read on the podcast, which I highly recommend, you can send those stories to storieswithatwang at gmail.com. I'll see you all next Monday when I bring you another story with a twang.